Well, that's a very sort of platonic take on morality that, you know, the moral principles somehow reside independently of us, independently of our biology in Plato's heaven. Nuts. Moral norms are not arbitrary. They are pluralistic in the sense that they usually reflect such things as the local ecology. And when the local ecology changes, norms change. You could not have a norm in any society that says the right thing to do is to take your firstborn child, boil it up, and eat it. It's not biologically possible. Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. Our philosophy events have been undersupplied this term, but this week we are joined by Professor Patricia Churchland, one of the founders of the subfield of neurophilosophy, which examines the relationship between philosophy and neuroscience. According to her, to understand the mind, we must understand the brain, and she applies findings from neuroscience to common philosophical questions about ethics, consciousness, and free will. It is also a pleasure to be able to hand over to Alex O'Connor, who is our guest host for this week's episode. Alex runs the Cosmic Skeptic blog, which has over 330,000 subscribers on YouTube, and he sat down with Pat earlier this week for a broad discussion about ethics, neurophilosophy, and its wider implications. Welcome, everybody, to the PPE Society's next event, most recent event. My name is Alex O'Connor. I'm a second-year philosophy and theology student at St. John's, and joining me today is Professor Patricia Churchland. Professor Churchland, I would kind of give you an introduction and tell everybody who you are and what you do, but I feel like you'd be a better person to uh, to, to do that. So why don't you tell us a, a few things about yourself, and, and thanks for joining us. Well, I uh, actually did my graduate degree in Oxford, um, and I think partly because Oxford sort of assumes that if you're there as a student, you're not too stupid, and they give you a tremendous amount of freedom. And it was really in that atmosphere, I think, that after several years, I began to have really, really deep doubts that the prevailing conventions about what was philosophy and how to do philosophy, I began to have doubts about those and doubts that even if you found analytic truths or even if you did conceptual analysis, it wasn't going to tell you anything about the nature of the mind. You could, you could analyze the word consciousness till the cows came home, but, but at bottom, we want to know the nature of it. We want to know its origin. We want to understand the mechanisms of it. So once I had a job and I had uh, my husband and I were both at the University of Manitoba, I realized that it was pretty obvious that you needed to understand quite a lot about the brain if you were going to really make progress in understanding the nature of knowledge, of decision making, of what it is to feel things, what it is to have a sense of self. It was that realization that sort of sent me to the University of Manitoba Medical School. And I went to the anatomy department first because I knew that if I didn't understand the structure of the brain, 
I wasn't going to be able to make sense of papers about functionality. And there was an Englishman, actually, who was head of the uh, anatomy department, a man called John Baskerville Hyde. And to his great credit, he thought that a philosopher is wanting to understand what was known about the nature of the brain was fun and admirable. So he really welcomed me into the med school. And at one point, I had my own human brain to dissect along with the other medical students. The neurologists, the clinicians also warmly embraced me and it allowed me to see patients with very specific focal kinds of brain damage. And out of this, really, I didn't have any plans to write a book, but out of this slowly emerged a sort of sense of how with neuroscience at all of its many levels and psychology and philosophy and anthropology, we could really make progress in understanding the nature of the brain. It was really out of that ferment that came the book Neurophilosophy. And since then, of course, I've been interested in many different topics. We can we can discuss some of those. But as you probably know, the the main focus for the last decade has been social neuroscience and what we understand about the mechanisms whereby we are social animals. We pick up norms often without being aware of them, that it involves that is the norms and adherence to norms often involves personality features, which we're just beginning to really understand the causal connection there. So that's a very kind of brief outline of what many philosophers regarded as completely heretical, crazy, rather ridiculous way to go about my work. Yeah, well, I certainly know as a philosophy student that one of the biggest criticisms that I would receive as not doing a real subject, as it were, is that philosophy seems to be this thing that is out there and kind of abstract and, and groundless. And it seems to me that when you use a phrase like neurophilosophy, we're invoking something a bit more hard science-y, neuroscience, that is, and trying to kind of bridge the gap between that and philosophy. And I find most interesting the way that understanding neuroscience, as you say, and understanding how we are social creatures can inform our thoughts about morality, which is one of the most yeah. most important areas of, of philosophy. But to me, there are two interesting questions, and I wondered if we could tease these apart. When it comes to morality and, and the brain or the mind and the relationship between them, there's one question of explaining descriptively why we have moral impulses. Most people feel certain moral impulses, even if we don't entirely agree on what they all are. And it seems quite strange. I mean, natural selection would seem, uh, if, if you're kind of unfamiliar with the, with the selfish gene idea or the expanding circle ideas and things like this, it would seem as though natural selection would want to pick selfishness for survival's sake, and yet we have this sense of altruism inside of us. And so there's one question of explaining how that comes about, why we might have evolved that way, and why our neurology might be attuned to being selfless. But on the other hand, there's a totally separate question of how we can justify those impulses. That is, if we feel that certain things are moral, how do we know that that actually makes them right? And I wonder if looking at neuroscience, to me it seems can very easily answer the first question in terms of why we're altruistic, but I'm not sure how much it has to say on the justifications for morality. I don't know if you would agree with that or if you think that neuroscience can, can answer both. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. And I think you're right that over the last sort of decade and a half, we really have come to understand why mammals and birds in particular have moral motivation. 
and why it is that children right from the earliest stages begin to pick up how to behave socially, how to succeed as a social animal. And it's very clear that what the basic story is, I think, at this stage. But of course, there are many, many details left out. On the other hand, although we are intensely social creatures, it's also true that like all mammals and all birds, our, our uh, circuitry for taking care of ourselves did not just die out. So we have this rather complicated situation whereby we have the circuitry for taking care of ourselves, most simply to see to our own food, warmth, and safety. But we also have the circuitry to take care of those to whom we are bonded. Now, those to whom we are bonded can, of course, that circle, as you pointed out, can, can change over time. And some people are highly bonded to their friends, but not so much to their immediate family and so forth. So there is certainly lots, lots of variability. So then the question of justification arises. So this is complicated because on the one hand, although we understand quite a bit about the basics of moral motivation, there is also tremendous amounts of social learning. And that is mediated by the reward system. So that that makes us feel good when we are praised and it makes us feel bad when we are punished. And that sculpts our conscience or our sense of what is right and wrong. Justification can sometimes appeal to those norms that we acquired as very young children. But bear in mind that, that the norms that were acquired are not norms that the child sat down and thought about, and is this really right, and is there a reason for this, and blah, blah, blah. You just pick them up. So perhaps at times when we are older, we may sometimes come to question some of those norms, like, is it really right to bully somebody just because all the other kids do it and, and the kid is funny looking, has red hair and freckles or whatever it happens to be? And, and we begin to question that. And then things do get very complicated. And I think one of the things that is really messy is the story of justification that within, let's say, the last couple of decades, philosophers have really tried to push. Like it's a function or it's a process that is purely rational. It, ha it should have no room for emotion. It should, you know, the fact of the matter is we are biological beings. We have the genes that we have. We have the wiring that we have. And sometimes the kinds of justifications that we give for undertaking an act that may have caused a lot of pain, but we think on balance caused more good. Sometimes those justifications, when you really kick them, turn out to be a bit on the iffy side. And so I, I think the story of rationality and justification in a moral context is really messy. And there certainly are psychologists who understand that as well and realize that when we talk about reason 
set aside from all emotions. We're not talking about something that any biological creature has. <laughs> I mean, we can be in sort of full panic mode when our emotions overwhelm us. And we can learn to sort of take a deep breath and be calm and talk to ourselves about being objective. But the idea that your emotions and your reward system is going to play no role is really pretty far-fetched. Mm. Now, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I, I certainly tend to agree with you that a lot of the development of morality within human beings seems to be related to, to reward systems, seems to be related to kind of norms that we pick up and things. But this, to me, seems somewhat damning of our traditional conception of morality. When we talk about something like altruism, you know, good people are often defined as those who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of other people. But if that moral motivation is at root based in our own pleasure systems, and it's kind of a norm that we've developed because we recognize that it's good for us, it makes us feel good, does that kind of undermine the concept of altruism because it's ultimately self-interested? I, I guess, you know, on balance, I think that it's asking a whole lot of a biological organism to uh, engage in social behavior without allowing any of the biological wiring to have a role. Look, I mean, we have to kind of accept ourselves as we are. I mean, we do certainly know that there are individuals who incur a cost in order to help another with no expectation of reward. And I think virtually everybody except the psychopaths does that. But when the cost is very large or when the sacrifice is your own family, then I think it's inevitable that the emotions will play a really significant role. And, you know, to kind of pretend that you're not really a proper moral agent if you take joy in cooperating because you're going you're gonna to benefit the other, but also yourself. I mean, that just seems to me so kind of puritanical and abstemious. Mm. I mean, it's like saying you should eat food only for its nutritional value, not because you enjoy the flavor of it. Yeah. Really? I mean, what kind of crap is that? I'm organized. My, my you know, my brain the, is organized to like the taste of certain kinds of foods. And to say I must only eat foods in which I take no pleasure is really kind of unrealistic, shall we say. Yeah, I, I feel as though perhaps people might counter by saying that food, I, I suppose food, food can have multiple purposes. You know, you can, you can eat food purely for enjoyment. You can eat food when you're not hungry because you just like the taste, as you say. But I think people tend to ascribe to morality as you say, a more puritanical function. It, it's not meant to serve as something that is self-benefiting. If it is, then then fine. But that being the justification, because I agree with you that, you know, it's it's a bad thing to, to say you're not allowed to take any enjoyment out of moral actions. You know, if, if you're getting something from it, then it's not true morality. But I think that if the reason you were doing the moral action was because of the fact that you got something out of it, people might think it's not as moral as perhaps it could be. But yeah, if morality comes from reward centers in the brain, then that seems to be what's going on here. Well, not exactly. I mean, one of the things you want to bear in mind, too, is that many of the signals we get as we are in the process of making a decision are not really available to introspection. I'm sure there are many people who do things, for example, giving money to food banks during this pandemic 
where they don't say to themselves, oh, this feels so good, I'm going to do this. Mm. That's all very sotto voce. It's below the level of consciousness. And most of what goes into our decision-making, whether it's moral decision-making or social but not moral decision-making, involves signals and factors to which we are not consciously privy. Occasionally, there probably are people who say, well, you know, I know it's good for my health to be a social organism and to do voluntary work in the community, so I'm going to do that. I mean, in our area, I know a ton of folks who do voluntary work. They never say anything like that. It's that I want to give back. I've been very lucky in my life and I want to give back. Or it's, you know, anything from a roster of, of 20 different plausible things that they may feel good about themselves as a result of their community volunteer work. To say that then that makes their action morally worthless is, I think, really, you know, a little bit too hard-assed. Mm. Yeah, I, it makes it makes sense. I also think that if somebody does say that, for instance, as you say, most people seem not to, but even if they do seems that we often define virtuous people as people who take pleasure from doing good things, as it were. If somebody yeah, commits a good action, like... yeah, if somebody commits a good action yeah. and they say something like, well, look, I, I couldn't not have done it. You know, I, I had to. I couldn't have lived with myself. Then instead of saying, oh, so you did it because, you know, you couldn't have lived yeah. with yourself. You're doing it for your own sake. You know, we, we don't criticize that kind of behavior. We think it's an indication of virtue. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, it seems to me that we don't want to be too harsh here, that we want to take into account the fact that we know that there are, are significant health consequences of being a social human, being involved in your community, doing volunteer work, helping other people. But I don't know of a single soul who does what they do in that way, because they say, well, it's good for my health. Right. Yes. I mean, but I can imagine a psychopath who might say that, but they mm. were probably too clever to actually say it. But we could tell from other things in their behavior that, you know, they're a little bit on the end of the psychopathic scale. Yeah, that's a sign of it. If you do kind of over rationalize the decisions you're making and you're kind of thinking about exactly how it will affect you and, and what, the, what the effects will be uh, rather yeah. than just thinking about virtue yeah. and, and good or bad. But as you say, this is something that kind of goes below the level of consciousness, even if... Very often, yeah. And if that's the case, uh, then there's still a question to be asked because we can say, well, look, pe people aren't acting because, you know, they're motivated by self-interest um, consciously, but the motivations they do have kind of below the level of consciousness have, have developed within them because it is in some way self-beneficial. The question is kind of, why are we tuned that way? Why are our brains tuned such yeah. that we do activate reward centers by helping other people? Why, why would that come about? Surely it would make more sense yeah. as biological organisms to be selfish and inward looking. No, that's a really good question. And there I think the social neuroscience has just made it, made tremendous discoveries in the last decade or so. The picture that Richard Dawkins outlines in The Selfish Gene is that we are through and through selfish. And that our altruistic or our moral behavior has to be taught. It has to be basically beaten into us. Now, it's interesting to me that Darwin had a very different view. And in 1871, in his book, The Descent of Man, Darwin asks the question, so where does our moral sense or our conscience come from? And he said there are three components. One is instinct. The other is learning. 
And the third is problem solving. I think the prevailing hypothesis now about instinct goes like this. About 200 million years ago, warm-blooded animals appeared on the planet for the first time. And it was a tremendous advantage because they could forage at night, they could forage in colder climates. They could even forage on cold-blooded animals that were waiting for the sun to come up. But there was a cost. And the cost was gram for gram, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much. And that is a huge ecological constraint. If you have a lizard for a pet, you can leave it for a week or 10 days and not feed it, and it'll be fine. If you have a dog, not good. So this constraint regarding calories allowed for certain mutations to be favored. And basically the changes that were favored were the changes for big learning. That is the animal has to have the flexible wiring so that it can really take advantage of how to prey catch. Now the downside of big learning is that every time you learn anything, your genes have to work with the brain to create structure, stuff a sprout on a neuron or a length on a dendron. And that means that in order for you to be a really big learner, you have to be born very immature. Why? Because you have to have space for all of that learning to grow its trees. Okay, so if you're going to be born very immature, somebody has got to take care of you. Now, if you're a mother, frog, let us say. You lay your eggs, you go on your merry way. When the eggs hatch, they're tadpoles. Nobody's there to take care of them. That doesn't work with mammals. So what was favored in natural selection was the wiring that did this, that took the wiring for self-care, seeing to my own food and warmth and safety, and then extend self to the babies. It's as though the babies are an extension of me in the sense that they are now part of what I care about. And just as I react to my own hunger, I react to their hunger. I don't just go off on my very old way like a mother lizard or a mother frog. And to ensure that this care is there, the wiring is there to be bonded. It's as though the mother really feels tremendous need to take care of the baby and to be very um, powerful and aggressive if the baby is attacked by predators. So the wiring for bonding is very profound. What then happened really is, this is of course a shortened version of the story, but is that the mammalian species then diverged and many, many species found nice ecological niches to live in. And the bonding patterns changed accordingly. So some animals turned out to be highly social, like wolves, where every element in the pack is tightly bonded to everyone else, and the males and females are bonded for life. Their entire sexual behavior is with the mate. But only about 5% of mammals have long-term pair bonding. And humans, I think, are an example of long-term pair bonding. Sometimes because we are so long-lived, it could be serial. All right, so first one mate and then 10 years later another and so forth. And of course, there's variability in all species. So not all prairie voles bond for life, but most of them do. 
So bonding, in, in the simplest way to think of this, is that bonding begets care, and care begets morality. So that some species, like baboons, the females within a kinship line are tightly bonded to each other. In other species, there are friends that are bonded tightly to each other, but the mates don't bond. So we see different patterns of bonding and care as a function of what developed in a particular ecology. And I think when you ask them, where did moral motivation come from? It's a long story. But notice that it is not the story that Richard Dawkins worried about, namely that some animal was born with a mutation that made it want to help others. And then everybody took advantage of it and it wasn't able to reproduce, so altruism died out. That's not the story. This is a very different story. It's not about the emergence of altruism as a result of, poof, a genetic mutation. It comes about as a result of the need for food in warm-blooded animals. So that's the basic story. And of course, the reward system kicks in to shape moral motivation to specific ways of behaving, to specific norms that are suitable for the group. So this all kind of sounds like the, shall we say, scientific side of neurophilosophy, as it were, because you're kind of describing yes. how things uh, how things change, how things evolved and things. Uh, to kind of marry that to the philosophy, yes. the question that I think would be philosophically asked about this is the problem of arbitrariness. The idea that, as you say, you know, you think of a frog that lays its eggs and then, and then goes off. We can kind of imagine a human being doing that and we wouldn't just think, wow, that's, that's really out of line with your biology. We think that's, that's something wrong. The problem with just kind of attributing morality to the way that we've developed and evolved is to say something like, well, had we evolved differently, then maybe it would have just been perfectly fine for us to leave our kids on their own. Some people might see that as objectionable. It seems like it's arbitrarily defining morality based on however we happened to evolve rather than as something strong and objective, uh, a neutral standpoint that we can have kind of moral reasoning from, if that makes sense. Well, that's a very sort of platonic take on morality that, you know, the moral principles somehow reside independently of us, independently of our biology in Plato's heaven. Nuts. Moral norms are not arbitrary. They are pluralistic in the sense that they usually reflect such things as the local ecology. And when the local ecology changes, norms change. And it doesn't help a lot, I think, to understand what policies, for example, we might wish to see enacted. It doesn't help a lot to insist that whatever those policies are, they should not be rooted in our biology. Of course, they're rooted in our biology. You could not have a norm in any society that says, the right thing to do is to take your firstborn child, boil it up, and eat it. It's not biologically possible. Now, having said that, of course, we all know that there is a certain amount of variability. That's the engine of natural selection. And so, yes, there are sometimes human mothers who, for one reason or another, may sacrifice their child, may leave the child and abandon it and neglect it. And that is generally frowned upon because the norm, what we all, pretty much all, share is 
that care of children, care of babies is so tremendously, tremendously important. And that's, that's, you know, part and parcel of what makes us the biological creatures that we are. But, you know, I mean, I think there's more here that is worrisome apart from caring for children, which is wonderful and people are inclined to it. And that is, I think that there is, as a result of our evolutionary history, a real inclination to war and to and to genocide. And that is very worrisome. And we don't say, oh, well, it's okay because it's probably in our genes. But it's stupid to deny that any of these things affect the brain wiring. Of course they do. But when war becomes so senseless and so terrible, there are, of course, strong motivations to bring it to a halt or to find ways of living with our biology so that we don't have these terrible things that we now call wars. So how might we discern here then if two qualities evolve within us, the first is uh, a propensity to care for our children, the other is a propensity to commit genocide or use acts of war or tribalism or something like that. How can we say something like, well, we evolved to care about our children and that's good. Um, we've also evolved with a tendency for violence, but that's bad. H how are we discerning which of our evolutionary kind of drives are within the moral sphere and which ones are excluded from it? I think it's a hard question because obviously under certain circumstances, especially in the hunter-gatherer societies when there is, is resource insecurity, it's not necessarily the wrong thing to do to make war on your neighbors. Mm. But certainly at this point, I think we would think that, and I guess this has been true since the Second World War, it is really highly disadvantageous to all involved to have a war, even to the winners. Yeah. But in a hunter-gatherer society and you have, let's say, 40 or 50 in your group and you're competing with another group for the same resources, perhaps you've just had a, had a fire or a drought or whatever. I don't want to say that it would be the moral thing to do, right? but suppose your option is either making war or you and your group die of starvation. It would be permissible, is right? It? it would make sense. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, in, in a, the earlier book, I talk about this story um, that is told by the, the Cree Indian, Indians of a terribly, terribly harsh winter when game became very, very, very scarce and people were starving, as did happen. And a woman gave birth to her baby. And she and her husband left the camp one night when they thought nobody was really looking. And the woman and the baby returned to the camp about three months later. She was nice and chubby and healthy, and so was the baby. Now, it was obvious to all in the camp what had happened. The man had sacrificed himself. She had eaten him and thus had milk for the baby. Now, what happened then was very interesting. And that was that the elders in the camp got together and over weeks and months, they realized that she was never going to be part of the group and nor was the baby. And as a result, they suffocated both of them. Now, we might think that was terrible and it was wrong. And indeed, the RCMP sent in a, a, a posse to, to hang the elders. 
But when you think about what they're up against and you think about the nature of life in those sorts of very, very harsh conditions, I think it's easy to be all sort of, you know, high and mighty and say it was wrong. I don't think these things are easy. They're terribly difficult. And there are no, you know, moral truths in Plato's heaven. Plato's heaven isn't there. And Aristotle, to his great credit, of course, took a very, very different view of the nature of knowledge and in particular, the nature of moral wisdom. Mm. And Aristotle, you know, like Confucius, actually, are, are very deep thinkers about the moral complexity of life. You know, when you're first thinking about about morality as a young person, you think, well, you know, they're, they just sound like my dad. You know, I think morality is more interesting than that. Well, it is messy and it isn't about rules and it isn't about justification of the kind that we're usually told in philosophy classes. I'm sorry, that sounds terribly down on philosophy, but, <laughs> but I mean, the philosophers that I admire in with regard to matters of uh, morals, of course, are Aristotle. Yeah. These were men of the world. Yeah. They're no, it, not yeah. Li apart from the world. Yeah, I won't mention it to my philosophy tutors. Don't want them to feel too bad. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, this is this is all interesting. It seems to me what I would extract from what you're saying here, the kind of point at base, is something like, and you can tell me if this is accurate, morality as traditionally thought of as a sphere of objectively existing descriptive truths can't in fact rise above our biology and that's the marriage of of the science and the philosophy that we talk about is to say philosophy doesn't get its own special throne that gets to sit in yeah. the abstract yeah. you have to pull it down to the real world and base it not in abstract ideas but in the biology of the people who are actually engaging with it or at least the biology of the species involved in this case right. humans has to be a major constraint has to be. And, you know, the other thing I think here is that it's not part of neuroscience, not even part of social neuroscience, to sort of make moral judgments about what we ought to do. I think those have to be made in the same old way we've always made them. We get together, we talk about it, we maybe compromise, we may... And, and by we, I don't just mean academics. I mean, actually, I think that in my rather limited experience of moral philosophers, that the last person you go to for advice on a moral dilemma is a moral philosopher. <laughs> yeah. That the practical people, including businessmen, farmers, carpenters, nurses, doctors, and maybe for good measure, throw in a philosopher. But they often have these rather distorted ideas, such as the one we talked about earlier, which is that if your moral motivation consists in any respect in thinking you might derive joy from this, then your action is morally worthless. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just mean-spirited. <laughs> yeah, it reminds, I saw a video, uh, uh, a parody the other day of somebody kind of on the floor needing some water. They're about to die of dehydration and a moral philosopher kind of walks up to them and, and, and the person says, you know, can I can you give me some of your water? And they stand there and they kind of go, well, 
you know, I, I, I could. I mean, it, it's it's causing me suffering to see you in, in that position. But if I give you my water because of that, then that wouldn't be moral. I'd be doing something wrong. So I can't do that. Well, maybe I could be a utilitarian, but then I'd have to give you the exact right amount of water. And I, I don't have any measurements on me and it'd take too long to go and get it. And, and he's just Brilliant. kind of stood there moralizing and the person just is just there like, please Feels give me so some water. And, and so, yeah, uh, perhaps you're right that when uh, that moral philosophy is best confined to essays in the abstract, because when you actually are put in the position, you don't it's really nasty. always have time to, to run through the papers, you know. Yeah. Um, but one of the, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and a related thing, I think, is this, that amongst utilitarians, for example, there is the view that everyone should count equally. The people you know, the people mm -hmm. you don't know, the people in your community, the people on the other side of the planet, they all count equally when you are about to make a moral decision. And I think that, too, is, is kind of stripping away something that we know is super important to people, morally speaking, and that is their own community. If you tell some of my friends who, who do all kinds of work in the community in San Diego that actually they should just be mon sending money to Myanmar, for example, mm. they're going to be very discouraged. They're going to be very disappointed. They won't do any work in the community either. Uh, they'll say, well, if, if what I'm doing for the community is morally worthless because, I, you know, I'm not taking, taking on board the idea that everyone counts as much as everyone else, then to hell with it. And that, I think, would be a tragedy. Seeing how people invest in their community and the people that they come to know from all walks of life is a tremendously important thing. Um, yeah, that would be a problem if it would potentially lead to the idea that not only should you maybe not, but they would actually become immoral to, you know, if there was a charity local to you that was trying to get hearing aids for deaf children or something and you gave some money to them, you could say, yeah. well, that's an yeah, immoral yeah. thing to do because there are people who are starving elsewhere in the world right. and that seems that's to right. be more important. And that's just doesn't seem to be how we how we work, how we function. It doesn't seem to be. I think that the, the motivation to help people in your community, even those people that you don't necessarily know or to help in, in constant conservation issues where what you're doing is is saving a piece of land or protecting birds or what have you and then to have someone say well you know that's morally kind of worthless because you didn't really take into account you know these starving folks out on, on blah blah i think it's the kind of moral snottiness amongst moral philosophers that i i actually think is wrong and bad yeah, they call it a whataboutism sometimes, kind of the idea of just always saying, well, what about this? What about that? What about... It's like yeah, nothing yeah. can actually be valued in itself. That's, I mean, interesting that we've reached a point of agreement there. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about another kind of roadblock here, which derives yeah. because because what we've essentially agreed upon here is that we need to be thinking about morality, philosophy in somewhat biological terms. We need to take into consideration, that is, our <laughs> biological nature. But here's the problem with this, is that the more we think of ourselves as kind of biological organisms, just machines of nature, the less room there seems to be for autonomy. Because if we consider ourselves as just a kind of biological process, that has quite a few implications. I think you'll agree for the question of free will and whether we have it and to what extent we have it and how that might affect our morality. I suppose my intuition is that as biological beings whose neurology is caused ultimately either by something inside of our brain uh, and the chain keeps going back and eventually is caused by something outside of our brain, even if by another person's brain, or something external, 
then we're not in control ultimately of the causal chain. The other option being that it's not caused, that is it's kind of randomly popping up in the brain, in which case you're not in control of it either. Seems to me that we're kind of removing the space in which free will could exist. It is, it is, this is messy also, but the thing to bear in mind is that one of the things that came about as a result of the emergence of warm-blooded animals and the need to be smart in order to survive, one of the things that changed from amphibians and reptiles and so forth was cortex. You have cortex, and cortex is absolutely massive. One way to think about it is that it's kind of like a buffer between the very deep instinctual things and uh, behavior. So that whereas an ant really has very little flexibility to respond to a situation, it just, you know, barrels on. Your cortex allows you much more flexibility. Now, we think of that flexibility in terms of trying to foresee the consequences, trying to evaluate the consequences that we can foresee, evaluating options, drawing on experience, and so forth. And those things are all indeed part of what goes into decision-making as a result of cortex. Now, the issue of control, I think, is also an issue where we don't want to, you know, make the demand for self-control to be so preposterously high, like freedom from all causal interactions or freedom from all influences, uh, but where we want to draw on what we actually know about circuitry for self-control. And a surprising amount actually has, has come into focus about what are the, are the systems that participate in self-control. So I'm going to tell you about an experiment. It's a very simple experiment, but it's brilliant. It was done by Trevor Robbins' lab in, in Cambridge. So they wanted to know a number of things. They wanted to know, for example, if a rat could delay gratification. Because mm. we think be, the capacity to do that shows control. So they had two food towers, and the, one food tower was such that whenever the rat pressed the button, it got a pellet. And then they put in the second one. And whenever the rat pressed that one, it got five pellets. Well, that's a no-brainer. But here's how you test now for delayed gratification. Over here, the rat knows it'll get five pellets. So put in a delay between when it presses and when the pellets come. And it only gets one shot. Right? It does this one or it does that one. It can't just sort of give up and go to the other one. So the rats would press the button. And if they had to wait, many of them did. Some of them could wait up to a minute for its five pellets. Some of them would press the button, wait, and then just give up. The circuitry for that is in the, in the brain and is in rather old subcortical parts of the brain, but also reaches into the cortex. So here's another experiment. What you want to know is, can an animal stop before it reaches the food tower? I'm going to, this is a whole new food tower now. Can it stop when it hears a sound? And how close can it get to the food tower and still stop? And of course, again, you see a difference. Some animals can stop an action once started and some can't. And the circuitry for that overlaps with the circuitry for the first, but is a little bit different, has slightly different components. Now, in the case of humans, we think here too, we're going to share 
much the same circuitry because we have the same structures in the basal ganglia. We're going to have much the same circuitry as the rats do, except probably rather fancier, and it will take advantage of our big fat cortex. And so there is a difference between an individual who has control and an individual who does not have control. And sometimes as a child grows up, we try to help them get a robust circuitry for control by rewarding them for the right kinds of things and so on. And that's about as good as it gets. If you want right. free will, where that means, you know, the brain isn't involved and no causal antecedents, you just haul off and make a decision using your wonderful pure reason. That's not this world. We don't live in that world. Yeah, but that seems to be the kind of definition of free will that people traditionally want. It seems like if we want to call something like delayed gratification or something like that, if we want to start calling that evidence of free will, that we're somewhat redefining it from the way that people generally think of it as, as it says on the tin, like freedom. Because if you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're kind of coercing people into into self-control because you're going to reward them ultimately, it's kind of like, look, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give you control but only because you know that if you do that, you're going to get rewarded for it. It's like that itself is a, is a causation. It's a psychological causation. Um, and so it still seems to be, as you say, it might be as good as it gets, but that still seems to be not quite good enough to, to call it free will. Yeah, no, I take your point on that. And actually, um, I sort of have quit using the expression free will right. because it has this strong association with a causal, non-causal. Yeah. And I think, look, I don't want to have to fight, you know, do a sort of who gets to use the word fight every time we have a discussion about mm. decision making. And so I prefer to just say, look, you know, I don't know what people mean by free will, but here's what we have. We do have the capacity and in some cases, an extraordinarily powerful capacity for self-control. I mean, after all, people go to graduate school with the expectation they might get a job at the end, or maybe not. Now, if that isn't self-control, I'm not <laughs> sure what is. But in any case, um, the, the main point is, if what you want for free will is this platonic thing, a causal capacity, we don't have that. But we have something that is pretty darn amazing. But, you know, dogs have a lot of capacity for self-control, too. And so do wolves and so forth. And they use the same structures that we use. It's the basal ganglia cortical connections. That is probably, as I said, that's probably as good as it gets. And if, if somebody really feels that then, you know, we can't ever punish anybody, then we turn to David Hume, <laughs> who understood very well that punishment, of course, is not this thing that you do for the platonic reason that the person did this, you know, morally heinous thing and acted with a causal free will. It's because you have to have a criminal justice system in order to have a stable society. Otherwise, people take justice into their own hands. Otherwise, you get the Wild West. Yeah. I know I'm sounding like, you know, the, the ultimate pragmatist, but pragmatism here can probably serve us better than this far-fetched platonic idealism. But that perhaps means we need to change the way that we view criminal justice, because, of course... Most people take pride and enjoyment in the idea of, uh, of functional criminal justice. They see it as, you know, you, you hear phrases like 
justice being served and and miscarriages of justice and things like this whereas uh, under this understanding we should be thinking of criminal justice as a regrettable thing it's like a a necessary evil because if free will doesn't exist in the way that people traditionally kind of want it to and we can recognize that somebody committing particular actions are doing so because of causal factors that are ultimately out of their control then yes we have to put them in jail but it's not it's not a good thing it's not something to celebrate it's it's a shame but that seems like quite a counterintuitive thing like well, it's... i wouldn't quite go that far i mean consider bernie madoff so yeah. bernie madoff was the guy who ran the ponzi scheme mm. and built people over a period of a decade and a half built people out of something like 78 billion dollars now you wouldn't call bernie madoff out of control You could not call him out of control. You could not (laughs) say that what he did, he was, it was a compulsion. It was not a compulsion. Well, I think whatever it would be, you know, whatever was was, going on in Bernie's head will have been... It was a cause. Why why do we associate, why do we need to associate causality or lack of causality with choice? I suppose uh, the thought would be something like uh, he was he was in control in the sense that everything he did was rationalized by himself and he was acting on his own volition like that that's yeah. the idea it's kind of like he he was the author of his actions in other words but if the reason he chose to be of that kind of constitution the the the, the kind of person that would be like that he didn't get to choose to be that kind of person uh, and I think that's what the kind of point gets at it's to say yes he he is actually just the kind of person who who does bad things, who is an evil man, who sets up Ponzi schemes, but he didn't choose to be well, that kind of person. not. He probably didn't start off life being an evil person. You know, his very good friend, uh, Pickhauer, they were, they were friends for a long, long time and went into business together. Now, in the end, of course, he built Pickhauer out of a huge amount of money. But uh, I don't, I, here's a different kind of example. Okay. You and I are talking. Do you think there are causal mechanisms that in virtue of which I say what I say? Or do you think that it's I'm out of control? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, well, we can leave that question up to the audience. But, <laughs> but clearly, our speech normally, at any yeah. rate, is one of the things over which we have tremendous control. And when people speak in a public way and they end up saying something really terrible, people round on them for it. They are golded or disfavored or punished or what have you. And yet it would be preposterous to think that either A, my speech is not causally controlled by my cortex and and subcortical structures, or B, that before I say anything, I make a decision that is conscious to say this rather than that. Nuts. If I had to do that when I speak, I would never be able to say hardly anything. I can't rehearse before what I, I can't rehearse what I'm going to say before I say it. Now that's pretty interesting. It means that there isn't a conscious choice in there. And yet we do think of it as very controlled behavior. Yes. There's a lot here that we should not oversimplify. And I think taking a biological, especially a neurobiological perspective allows us to see the complexity for what it is. Yeah. I think there are questions to be raised about, for instance, you say uh, about kind of not rehearsing your speech before you say it. It, it seems strange to me that that, that appears like we're, we're holding people morally accountable for things that they, they didn't exactly have any control over if they didn't, uh, in the sense of... <laughs> yes, they do have control over it. The control is very complex. That's all. I see what you mean. So take something like, I read a paper once uh, giving examples such as 
forgetting someone's birthday. Yeah, a lot of people get angry if you forget their birthday, but that's almost by definition because you've forgotten it. It's like <laughs> that's not your fault. You you can't you can't control what you what you forget. But it seems like maybe there's a layer underneath that of control that you yes. could have that would have led to you remembering the birthday. But even things like people say, "Look, you shouldn't be so angry." Is that something you decide? I, anger feels like something that kind of happens to you. You know, when 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 information um Well, that's true. When information arises and you just have an angry reaction and someone says, look, you shouldn't be so angry. It's like, you didn't really choose to do that. So can you really, is it, does it really make sense to hold people accountable for that kind of thing? Well, I think when people, people say you should be so angry, they mean maybe you misunderstood what went on. And if you understand that, you won't feel so angry. Because in a certain sense, of course, you're right. You, you know, you feel what you feel. But it's also true that you can do certain things to control the intensity of your emotions. You know, take deep breaths, you know, think of your feet, think of, you know, going swimming in your favorite place and things like that. I mean, that's part of what yoga and meditation and so forth is all about. It is learning the, the capacity so that you're not overwhelmed. Yeah. And there is great variability amongst people in whether or not they are overwhelmed by their emotions. Yeah, it seems uh, to, to avoid kind of just pushing the question back. We can say something like, sure, you, you can't choose your emotions, but you can choose to do things that might that might affect your emotions. Of course, of course. Then you have to talk about the causal processes that go into choosing to do that thing. Um, and the, the sure. question seems to kind of go on forever but it's an interesting point you raised there about what we really mean when we say things like you shouldn't be so angry and that seems to me a point of like philosophy of language that we don't actually yeah, yeah. mean exactly what so. we say you know when yeah. when the the example that anybody listening who's a PPE student will remember from Volker Halbach's uh, manual logic manual that if someone says are you available tomorrow and someone says oh I'm I'm looking after my mom or something they didn't say no but that, that's what they meant. You know, that's what they were really trying to get across. Yeah, and that's a similar kind of thing that could go on yeah. with a lot of our moral language, I think. Probably. Yeah. I think there probably is a lot more that's implicit and not explicit when we have these moral discussions. I sometimes try this out, actually, on people down at Dog Beach, where I take the dogs to go play, just, you know, to ask them questions about morality and free will and so forth. And it's interesting to me that by and large, you know, they're their take on many of these things are much more kind of grounded and pragmatic mm. than the take on those things within, shall we say, conventional philosophical domains. It's a lot to chew on. Like, why might that be the case that the people who are really dedicating themselves to morality end up seemingly more detached from it than when they started? But suppose <laughs> that's a question that we'll have to we'll have to take aim at the philosophy department for. Uh, <laughs> I like to know how how people are seeing these things. Mm. I think it's really important, especially because I think that this sort of new generation or two of philosophy undergraduates are exposed to a very different kind of literature than what was sort of standard fare in the last century. And I think on the whole, it's a really good thing. So I'd like to know what they're thinking. Yeah, well, as I say, I'll, I'll, we'll make sure that you uh, you know where this is being posted and whatnot, and you can yeah. have a look at some of the comments and things. And and that's a reminder, by the way, uh, to anybody listening slash watching, uh, if you do have questions or comments, do leave them in the comments. It's not just for my sake or the society's sake or for Professor Churchland's sake, but also for the sake of other people watching. It's good to kind of get the get the questions raised because a lot of this has been <laughs> seems more about raising questions that need to be uh, thought about than necessarily answering them. Uh, but I guess that is yeah. just the nature of philosophy. So. 
As I say, I have been Alex O'Connor for the PPE Society, and today I have been in conversation with Professor Patricia Churchland.